Good evening and welcome to Straight Talk. Our show tonight is coming to you from the campus of California State University, Long Beach. Our special guest is investigative journalist and best-selling author, William D. Cohn. We will be talking with him about his latest book, House of Cards, and the financial crisis triggered by the greed and hubris of Wall Street. Stay with us for this special edition of Straight Talk. Opinions expressed in the following program do not necessarily reflect the views of Charter Communications nor its sponsors. We recognize our obligation to present opposing points of view by responsible spokespersons. For information, please contact the director of the program. She stands in the face of evil and will not lose hope or faith. America, the land of freedom, is still the home of the brave. So raise the banner, call the glory, let us join our fellow man. Straight Talk is brought to you in part by Southern California Edison. For over 100 years, life powered by Edison. The Press-Telegram, your local news leader for over 100 years. And Long Beach Magazine. Coastal living, city style. Join us for tonight's edition of Straight Talk. And now your host, Art Levine. Welcome to our campus, Mr. Cohn. Thank you, Art. It's nice to be here. The title of your book, House of Cards, A Tale of Wretched Excess and Hubris on Wall Street. How did you come up with that title? <laughs> well, <clears throat> my wife is the one that comes up with the titles of my books. And uh, it came to her truly. True story, in a dream uh, overnight uh, while she was sleeping. And it actually works incredibly well because uh, not only was Bear Stearns and the rest of Wall Street built on a very shaky uh, architecture and a shaky foundation, but three of the top five executives at Bear Stearns were expert bridge players and bridge national champions. And so the fact, and, and in fact, were playing cards uh. and playing bridge at times when they should have been focusing on the business. So you had to sort of have this double entendre that was just too good to resist. And there are many uh, at fault in this financial meltdown, but Wall Street has particular culpability. Absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with, with you more about that. Uh, there are, you, you worked 17 years on and, Wall Street. And I worked 17 years on Wall Street, so I know the culture, I know the people, I know the attitude, and, and you know, without being too arrogant about it, I know what I'm talking about when I say that I understand how Wall Street's culture had a big role in this. And, you know, to me, you know, there were a lot of, you know, pieces of the puzzle. There were, there were 
you know, people who got mortgages who couldn't afford them. There were, uh, you know, public policy that encouraged home ownership and lowered interest rates so that, you know, investors wanted yield and had were given it to them through mortgage-backed securities and, and other uh, interest, higher interest-bearing uh, securities. But really it was, in my mind, it was Wall Street who saw this business of packaging up mortgages, turning them into securities, and selling them around the world as investments as a gold mine, which was too good to resist for Wall Street. And they, by the end, were buying mortgages, you know, a lot of them from California, Many. From, from mortgage brokers, keeping them on their balance sheet until they could package them up into securities that were rated AAA by the rating agencies, and then to satisfy the demand for yielding, high-yielding investments, because interest rates were so low, thanks to Alan Greenspan, you had this cancer that was spread all around the world. And that's why this became a global crisis. And you can ask yourself why Wall Street was so interested in this business. And it, I, I know the answer to that one. It was very profitable. It was very profitable, and it was the way the compensation system on Wall Street had evolved over time from when Wall Street was a series of private partnerships where partners had their capital in these firms, they were private, they shared in the profits plus the liabilities up to their entire net worth. Well, that all changed when these firms started going public, and as a result, bankers no longer had their capital in these firms. They no longer cared about the risks that these firms were taking. They cared about one thing only, their bonus, how much they could make in any given year. And the, the formula for their bonus was based on how much revenue they generated. And if you're in the mortgage-backed security salesman, how many mortgage-backed securities do you sell to create the revenue that you can then you know, base your bonus off of? And there was no one to you know, provide any kind of carburetor on that behavior. Everybody just you know, had one goal in mind, sell, sell, sell as much as you possibly could, and whatever risks that anybody was taking were not relevant to that equation. And there was a lax regulatory environment, of course, that permitted all of this to go on. But it seemed to many of us that basically what we have here is privatizing the gains, these huge bonuses that they were making. And when the music stopped, we socialized the risks, the taxpayers, billions and billions paid for their... It's like giving people money to walk into a casino. If they win, they keep it. And if they lose, they come to us. Yes, that's true. And that's exactly what Senator Dodd said uh, in April of 2008 at a Senate Banking Committee hearing where Alan Schwartz, the CEO of Bear Stearns, appeared for the first time to try to explain why this had happened. He said, you know, you've, you've privatized the gains and socialized the risk, and uh, that's exactly what did happen. And it's an incredible system that, that, that we would allow this to happen. And what's more frustrating is, you know, how there was no change that, you know, we've been through this crisis. We've put out $12 trillion of taxpayer money to try to pump up the capital market system and revitalize Wall Street. And yet we're at a time when there's, you know, more than 10% unemployment. Some 17 to 18% of people are either unemployed or stopped looking for jobs. You know, small businesses can't get loans. Uh, and these big banks, you know, the ones that survived through our help, are now making billions in profits again. And, you know, until yesterday when uh, Lloyd Blankfein, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, you know, he man managed to cough up a little bit of an apology for what happened after, you know, almost two years. You know, not one other CEO on Wall Street has managed to say anything about what has happened here and why. 
or, or, or how they, what they did to contribute to this mess. And, uh, you know, I think, I think that's a real shame. You worked, on, you worked on Wall Street for 17 years. Most of us have some gene somewhere with a sense of guilt or responsibility or shame. <laughs> Is, are those genes missing from some of the Wall Street crowd? I don't think they're wired that way. I think that's I think that's accurate. I mean, you know, they're human beings too. Let's not forget. I mean, this is a book about human beings and a book about decisions that people made to get into this problem. But, you know, guilt, shame, remorse, you know, accountability, there doesn't seem to be a whole lot of interest in those things. I mean, I think they believe that they uh provide a vital service to our economy by making sure the capital markets are working properly and that that's what they're put on earth to do. And we can't have a capitalist system without the capital markets working properly. And so that's their role and they're going to do whatever they have to do to do it. They get compensated by generating revenue and selling securities. Wall Street is nothing if not a major league selling machine. Everybody is set up to sell, 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 sell. That's why you have to be very wary when somebody on Wall Street wants to sell you something. And from my own experience on Wall Street, I remember if there is a demand for a product, it's just like in the fashion industry. If women want X, the fashion industry will make X. On Wall Street, if there's a demand for Y, they will create Y. And, 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 and my, as Mike Milken, our neighbor to the south here, so famously said, when, when the ducks quack, you've got to feed them. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's exactly what Wall Street does. So this was enormous demand for these securitized uh, mortgages that Wall Street could sell mainly to Asia, but really all over. All, all over the world, yes. And I'm told that the worse the, the security, the further away they try and sell it. Uh, well, but I, I don't know about that, but I mean, I bet that the worse the security, the riskier security, the higher the yield. So yes. I bet you would have... Uh, you know, higher demand for that. You know, people people lost their heads is usually what happens in these bubbles. And by the way, this isn't this the a, first this time. This is a classic bubble. This is a classic, you know, asset price bubble. But and you know, people got carried away. They forgot what you know risk meant. They forgot what risky securities were. They forgot that there was any risk, you know, whatsoever. It's you know, it's it's not a coincidence that uh, you know Bernie Madoff's Ponzi scheme fell fell apart at the same time because once people woke up to what real risk was about and the fact that you can't get you know, 12% annualized returns year after year without risk, that, that they said, wait a minute, these things are risky. The, you know, and by the way, the underlying mortgages that were, you know, there were actually people who were supposed to pay their mortgages that were underlying these securities. Well, when people in California and Florida and the rest of the country couldn't pay the mortgage payments, these mortgages went into default and the mortgage securities that they were built upon also went into default and you know they lost value extremely quickly. You mentioned uh, California being the origin of many of these mortgages what it is we have things called Nina mortgages here no income no assets if you were breathing you could get a mortgage and yes. you know you don't have to be too bright to realize that these are very risky things but people went for it and you mentioned earlier that the investment bankers no longer had their personal assets at risk because these banks went public. If the banks that were making these mortgage loans had to keep those mortgage loans, they probably never would have made them, but they could ship them to Wall Street. You mean the, the mortgage brokers, the, the bank, the, the, and the, yes, and the, the banks that, that, that provide, yeah, that well, provided Nina well, loans. Yeah, well, once upon a time, right, you know, you had a, 
a community bank. It would go, go to Art Levine. Your friend, the banker, would say, you know, are you credit worthy? Are you going to pay me back? And he'd make that decision if he decided to make you a mortgage. He kept it on his books, and that was your relationship. You paid him your, your interest in principal payments, and he made you this loan, and that became an asset on his books. Well, because of what happened on Wall Street in the early 80s, you know, the other thing Wall Street's very good at is financial innovation. So that same spirit that created Mike Milken and created the high-yield bond industry also created the securitization industry. A guy named Lou Ranieri at Solomon Brothers in the early 80s created what became the asset securitization business, which in effect is a good idea, just like high-yield bonds is a good idea, just like probably Internet IPOs is a good idea. These ideas are good, but unfortunately, because of the compensation system on Wall Street, there's no one who knows to say enough is enough. And it's only after the bubble explodes that people say, well, maybe we got carried away too far. And if you're the risk manager of one of these firms and you have some sense of doubt about where this is going and you try and caution your partners not to go in that direction, you're not Mr. Popularity there. And you probably won't have a job for very long. <laughs> I mean, it's, it, that's right. It's the nature of, of the beast. Uh, you know, first of all, I think is. Lloyd Blankfein uh, has said, again, the CEO of Goldman Sachs, that the rest of Wall Street was not very good at risk management. That the, that the, I mean, and if anything, my, my book shows is, you know, Bear Stearns had a risk manager and a risk management function. And, you know, it reported up through the chain of command. But it, it was worthless. There, there was nobody managing the risk. Nobody cared really about the risk. Nobody even conceived of the risks that this could end up being. They were, they were focused on one thing, making money. The more profits, the better. And for time, mortgage-backed securities were an incredibly profitable business. For a time, anybody who touched a mortgage made money on it. What about the role or the lax, the role of lax government oversight? Let's, let's assume that Wall Street always is motivated by greed. Shouldn't there yes. be some government institutions that say, stop, you can't do this? And I think of one thing, the the change in regulations that allowed brokerage firms to go up to 40 to 1 yes. ratio of debt to capital. Yes, yeah, that, that, that occurred in June 2004. The SEC, uh, we know the regulator of Wall Street securities firms, allowed that to happen. With the quid pro quo, because they, they just weren't going to give it to them willy-nilly, the quid pro quo was that they were going to regulate them more intensely. They were going to actually have regulators from the SEC in these firms. But unfortunately, that's the part of the equation that they forgot. And it wasn't until you know, August 2007, the same weekend that Jimmy Kane, the CEO of Bear Stearns, fired Warren Spector, the co-president of Bear Stearns, after they had both been playing bridge at a bridge tournament in Nashville. They came back, and Jimmy fired him. That same weekend, KKR, the private equity firm, was in Bear Stearns' office thinking about making an investment in Bear Stearns. And in the third room was the SEC. So from June of 2004 to August 2007, no one from the SEC had showed up. So they were allowed to have this huge leverage. And by the way, during the quarter, before they cleaned it up at the end of the quarter, it was like 50 to 1 leverage. They would clean it up at the end of the quarter so to make it look 30 to 1. But it, it was just, you know, absurd. Well, uh, a lot of food for thought. And we'll be continuing with this marvelous conversation after we pause for these messages. Electricity is different from any other product we use. We can't store it. We must use it wisely, but can't do without it completely. And there's no substitute for this special form of energy that brings us light, comfort, and progress. 
That's why California needs new standards that can keep utilities strong, guard against another power crisis, and protect consumers from the kind of shortages that often affect other commodities. Because electricity is different. The Port of Long Beach, one of the region's largest construction contractors, has work for businesses big and small. The SBE, or Small Business Enterprise Program, was established by the Board of Harbor Commissioners in 2004 to boost the local economy. Through this program, small businesses get a chance at big port contracts in the areas of construction, environmental consulting, engineering and architectural services, and more. To learn more, log on to www.polb.com or call 562-590-4146. For over 80 years, Community Hospital of Long Beach has served the greater Long Beach community by providing the best medical care possible with a focus on clinical excellence and a caring, compassionate, personalized approach for every patient. It is our goal to be the community's preferred health care provider, providing a 24-7 rapid response emergency department, a state-of-the-art cancer center, and a free wellness and diabetes program. We are proud to introduce CHLB's new bariatrics program featuring the safe and effective lap band system. Community Hospital of Long Beach. When you have a choice, choose the best. We're continuing our conversation with Bill Cohn, author of House of Cards, A Tale of Hubris and Wretched Excess on Wall Street. Greed is the, is the watchword on Wall Street, right? That's what it's you're It's the motivating for. force. So our, yeah, I mean, no, nobody's going to be uh, working on Wall Street unless they're motivated. The, 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 you know, there's an altruism on Wall Street. I used to say that Wall Street was good one day a year, the year you got your bonus. And other than that... <laughs> It was, a, it's a very tough, I mean, look, I mean, say what you will, they get paid way too much money. Yes. But, but, but it is a tough job. I mean, it, I mean, it's not like laboriously, you know, back-breaking work, like, like working in a salt mine. But, but, you know, it metaphorically has been described as a salt mine. It, you know, you, you're up all hours of the day. You, you have to fly around the world on a moment's notice to make a, and the way a you, stupid pitch about something. And, and the it, way you keep score is how much you make. You, absolutely. That's it. Well, and of course, how much revenue you generate in any given year. So then at the end of the year, because of this wacky compensation system that we talked about, that, that, you know, you're always keeping score, keeping track of the amount of revenues you generated, the amount of fees you generated. So that that way, at the end of the year, you can say to your boss, hey, I worked on this deal, this deal, this deal, and this deal. I generated this much money. You know, I want a big bonus. What about the role of government in this? I mean, there'll always be people pushing for, for money and even uh, going over the line with criminal activity. Shouldn't yes. the regulator, were the regulators asleep at the switch? I mean, to, so, to some extent, the regulators were asleep at the switch, but to some extent, it's never been a fair fight. Think about it. You've got, you know, a bunch of regulators in Washington, and, you know, I don't want to ascribe, you know, behavior to them based on the fact that they might be government bureaucrats or, you know, yeah. trying to regulate these, the, tigers. The, these tigers and lions on Wall Street who get paid millions of dollars a year, who create a language that they barely can understand, let alone a regulator <laughs> in, Wa in Washington. And it's just the numbers don't work. I mean, the people on Wall Street are in business to evade and get around the Wall Street regulations, which by the, the Washington regulations, which by the way, they help write. And, and the regulators in Washington are, you know, if they don't want to go to Wall Street to begin with, because there's a revolving door between the two, and there always has been, then, then you know, they're, they're overwhelmed or befuddled, and they can't, you know, figure it out. Now, yes, the regulators, 
should have lived up to their part of the bargain from June 2004 on when they, when they allowed Wall Street firms to up their leverage. They said they were going to be in these firms regulating, regulating them, monitoring them, but, but they didn't do it. There is a real anger out in Main Street USA about what happened and the impact it's had. You referred to the unemployment earlier, uh, the fact that the very banks that we bailed out are raising their credit card limits before the law changes. And it, 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 just, it just seems unfair. We helped them survive, many of them, and yet they seem to be conducting business as usual. Absolutely, and it's almost better than that because they have fewer competitors. Bear Stearns <laughs> is gone, Lehman is gone, Merrill is oh a shadow God. of his former self. So you have the survivors, the Goldman Sachs, the Morgan Stanleys, the J.P. Morgan Chases, who are happier than ever, okay? Like pigs in, you, you name it, okay? And, and, you know, I've written about how, because of this bailout, you know, don't forget, you know, one of the, un, the unstated benefits of all this in addition to the fact that we as taxpayers are, are subsidizing these firms through our savings because we're getting nothing on our savings and interest rates are being kept so low, which is you know, the rocket fuel for Wall Street. So if their cost of goods sold, their cost, their biggest cost, which is money and capital, is free and without any competition, I mean, it's no surprise that Goldman Sachs is minting money. And as a result, Goldman Sachs' stock, just to pick one example, has gone from in the 50s, in, in the depths of the crisis, to now close to 200 again. So it's up four times. You, you know, Lloyd Blankfein, his, the value of his stock has gone from about $150 million to $600 million. Why? In part because of the benefit that taxpayers provided. Has one of them had the decency to come forward? and explain to the American people what happened here and why, what exactly their firms did to foment this crisis, to exacerbate this crisis? Has one of these CEOs come forward to say anything about that? No, not a word. We got a little bit of an apology yesterday from Blankfein, but where's John Mack? Where's Jamie Dimon? Where's the Dick Fald? Where's uh, you know, the people that I've written about in the Bear Stearns book? Why haven't they come forward to explain to the American people who bailed them out so nicely to explain what happened here. Bill, you have a unique perspective. You're a graduate of the Columbia School of Journalism. You spent 17 years on Wall Street with top firms. Uh, what's your prescription for, for the future? What, what should we do to prevent this kind of thing from happening again? And as you suggested earlier, it's already beginning to happen again. Right. Well, I mean, first, I, I think that you know, we need to have some sort of a, a bit of a bloodletting, you know, metaphorically at least. And what I mean by that is that I think, I, I do agree, that I think it's time, I agree with myself, I guess, I think it's time <laughs> for these guys to come and explain to the American people what happened here and why. Because I think if there's a, you know, a couple of days hearing in front of Congress on this subject, it'll educate and inform, and it'll put people on the record for what happened and help us to prevent it from happening again. There's been no action, no even an inkling of that happening. Number two, I think, and probably even more important if you want to really change it, you have to go back to having these guys have skin in the game again. You have to go back. You know, you're never going to make Goldman Sachs a private partnership again. But that culture, and, and they do it better than most, but that culture of having skin in the game is really important because that makes you very conscientious about the risks that you are taking, very aware of the risks you're taking. 
to, to go back to your metaphor about being a casino, if you, if you go in playing with the house's money, you know, who cares? You're just going to wing it. And that's what Wall Street is now. People just go in there and they wing it. And until they get their full net worth back on the line again, and I have a, I, some ideas for that, until they do that, you're going to have a re repeat of this in short order. And it infuriates the American public, I believe. As it should. That, uh, that CEOs, not just on Wall Street, but whether the company does well or badly, they get huge bonuses and huge compensation. It's one thing to compensate a brilliant CEO who creates a new product and it prospers. But another thing, just to, to take huge compensation and bonuses, even though the company's tanking and the stock is tanking. Uh, and, that's, and that's what we've just seen on Wall Street. Basically, Wall Street takes risks with their creditors' money and with their shareholders' money. How about their own money? I mean, if you create a great product with your own money and create a great business with your own money, the sky's the limit. Take as much as you want. And most Americans would support that. Absolutely. But it's, it seems un-American and completely <laughs> unfair for you to take these huge risks with your shareholders' money and your creditors' money, lose money, billions, and still get millions of dollars in bonuses. And then come to the American taxpayer for a multi-billion dollar bailout. Exactly. It's, it's really is outrageous. And, and then pay it back and, and claim like, you know, we're just going to go on as if nothing had happened. Well, ethics and values seem to be underlying uh, a lot of the problems here. And we have to accept greed as part of human nature. And there's a place for Wall Street, as you pointed out. But to provide some skin in the game, as you suggested, and maybe a little bit more vigorous regulatory regime. Well, you know, first of all, I think uh, there are a lot of good people on Wall Street. And they just want to do, a lot of them just are doing what they're rewarded to do. But I think the mores of Wall Street, the ethic of Wall Street, is, is so tilted in favor of greed and self-interest that until you change that, and I, you know, that, that's not something that can be regulated away. That's, that's part of human nature. Okay? I mean, there is a, definitely a Darwinian element to Wall Street that you know, sometimes works for the good. I mean, a lot of new products are created, what I call the democratization of capital, that sending capital around the globe to wherever it's needed 24-7. Those are good things. But until you have more skin in the game, you, you know, Wall Street has to really, if you want it to change, it has to do it itself. You know, if you have regulations coming out of Washington, Wall Street's just going to figure out ways to evade them. That's why when they were private partnerships, they did have skin in the game. Wall Street was still a dangerous place. But you didn't see these blow-ups or these risks to the whole system that you have now with these huge firms that, that have, you know, their shareholders and their creditors' money to play with. It's... Yeah. It's an insane system, and, and as, and as uh, uh, Rahm Emanuel said, the chief of staff to Barack Obama, you know, you shouldn't waste a good crisis. Well, unfortunately, <laughs> I think we're wasting this yeah. good crisis. We had a chance to reform the system, but with the Dow at close to 11,000 again, up from 6,500, there's no will anymore to do anything about it. I know you're thinking of a third book uh, following... Uh uh, the book about Lazard, The Last Tycoons, which was also a bestseller, and, and most recently House of Cards. What's your thinking about your next book? Well, thank you for asking, Art. It, it's, uh, I'm, I'm writing a book about Goldman Sachs and trying to uh, show people how the firm got to be as successful as it is, how it makes money, because I think for most people it's completely opaque. It's a total black box. They don't understand it, and they're not very good at explaining it. And then how, trying to explain to people how Goldman Sachs came through this crisis, you know, 
better than anybody else. And they historically have been kind of the blue chip firm on Wall Street, the, oh, well, the, the best. Well, Goldman Sachs, no matter where I worked, whether it was Lazard or Merrill Lynch or J.P. Morgan Chase, or even at Bear Stearns where I didn't work, but everybody compared themselves to Goldman Sachs. Everybody wanted to be like Goldman Sachs. They, they were the, you know, the cream of the crop. And what's interesting is that everybody wanted to be like them, but nobody was willing to do the things that Goldman did to make itself special. And that's what I'm going to ex be exploring in the book. It's, a, it's an extraordinary uh, firm. It's an incredible reporting and writing challenge because, uh, you know, they're not going out of their way to make it easy for me, and, which is fine. <laughs> I love that challenge, and I, and I look forward to, you know, really explicating this firm and making sure everybody understands what makes it tick. Well, we want to thank you for uh, joining us here on uh, In Conversation. And also, uh, you're here at the Long Beach State Campus to be our third annual distinguished speaker. And we very much look forward to your public remarks to, to the students and the faculty and staff of the university and to the entire Long Beach community. So uh, oh, I look forward to that myself. Thank, thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure meeting you. And, 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 and thank you for your important work in uh, and kind of explaining to so many of us that find it difficult to understand what went on, what really did go on, and, and equally importantly, what we might do in the future so we don't get into this mess again. Thank you, Art. Okay. Thank you all for, for joining us for tonight's In Conversation show. It's been a pleasure to host Mr. Cohn as part of the CSULB Distinguished Speaker Series. To all of our viewers, Thank you so much for joining us. Straight Talk has been brought to you by Southern California Edison, The Press-Telegram, and Long Beach Magazine. And remember, Straight Talk is viewable worldwide 24-7 at straighttalktv.com.